right, we are going into part two in our study of the book of 1 Corinthians. So last week, we kind of, it was our introduction to the book, the, to the series, to this Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. And uh, if you remember, we're, we're dealing with a city that's noted for its, its uh, lack of morals, its lack of character. This is a city where everything went, and they had paganism, they had prostitutes. I mean, to the point there was, you know, it's not like in the, the United States where prostitution was looked on as a bad thing. There, it was a good thing. It was, it was done in the temple. It was part of the worship. Their, their idea of what was honoring was totally out of whack. And this place was, it was a mess. This city was a mess. And it was causing problems for the believers who lived there because the truth is, is that we still live in this world, even if we're not a part of it. You know, and we see similar things today. We live in a society where, where we're, we're not of this world. We're of the kingdom of heaven, but we still have to live in this world and deal with all that stuff. And you see it all the time in, in, in Christian lives everywhere that the world is trying to encroach in on your life. And that was the problem here. Not only were they having this, this terrible, immoral world around them trying to encroach in, most of them came from that world, so they're still trying to get away from it, grow away from that as well. And we see a couple of things that were happening in that church, right? They, like many of us, they're getting saved. They're trying to get away from their, their old life. Society around them is awful, so that's creeping into the church. And we're starting to see factions. We're starting to see cliques. We're starting to see all kinds of a mess happen. And we're going to see that it was actually close family that sent word to, to Paul, who was in Ephesus at the time, and said, hey, we got a problem here. Things are falling apart at the seams, and we could really use your help. So Paul addresses the Corinthian church with what's going on. So this week, we're going to start to dig in and see how Paul is beginning to address the division or the cliques or the factions in the church. And there was basically, uh, apparently, groups forming in in the church, rallying, and people, different people were rallying around. You guys ever seen that in a church? Where, where, you know, you have different pastors, and this group of people are loyal to this pastor, and this group of people are loyal to this pastor. And, and oftentimes, we end up seeing church splits. You know, when a, when a church uh, becomes two separate churches, the idea is we want to have that as an, a multiplication, not splitting. Splitting is a bad thing. Even though one church became two, that's not multiplication. That's, that's damaging to the body. What we want to see is people raised up and then multiplied out of the church, amen, with everyone's full support behind it in unity. But what's happening, and today we see it in churches, and just like then, is there's these, these factions going around, and people are, are attaching themselves to men and not to God, and that's a problem. And they're probably, you know, they're having the age-old argument, right? Who's better, who's right? And we see that today also in, in, in denominations and in churches today too. We have a split in the body of Christ because different denominations think that they're right. No, we're right. No, you can't do this. You can do that. As Christians, today we should be pressing for unity, not division. In Ephesians 4.13, he says, Until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's our goal. That's our aim. Jesus Christ is our measuring stick. He's our plumb line. He's who we should be standing next to and saying, am I here? And if you're not, we just need to keep moving towards it. And to be honest with you, if you look at it and you realize you're not there yet, that's not the end of the world. That's, not the, that's okay. 
It's a process. But let's keep moving toward the unity of the faith. Let's keep moving towards who Christ is in our lives. And when we begin to look like that, when we begin to look at, 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 at our, our churches and Christianity like that, you'll begin to see that all this other stuff falls away when Christ is the focus instead of denomination or leaders or anything else. And then finally, Paul's going to dwell into the message of the gospel. And really, he's going to point out that, that pointing out the differences between the wisdom of God or the message of God and the wisdom of man. Because all too often, most often, the message of God contradicts with the wisdom of man. And he, this is where he deals with the, the, the idea that the whole idea of Christ coming to die for us on the cross seems kind of silly in our eyes. It seems like kind of a crazy way to do things. And for us now, you're like, Pastor Wayne, it's not silly. It makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense in hindsight. But there was a time when you went, you might even have thought, that doesn't seem right, but it also seems kind of cruel. Why would God do that? But the truth is that God's wisdom is different than our wisdom. And it's not until hindsight, until looking back, that we finally realize why it had to be done that way, why it was important, and why it was the correct way to do it. Amen? Let's go ahead and get started. First Corinthians. Chapter 1, verse 10. And Paul says, And I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no division, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Unity is a requirement of the church. It's not just a good idea. It's not just something we should do. Unity is, if we want to be effective in this community, we want to be effective with our friends and family. If we just want to be effective in our walk with Jesus, we need to be in unity with one another. And I don't even just mean in this church. I mean churches all across this city. And this, we need to be in unity. And what's happening here is, is, is that there's, he's saying that, I, that there should be no divisions among you. So obviously there was. And that doesn't look like unity. Matter of fact, when you see divisions and stuff like that, you begin to stop looking like Christians. Start looking like something else. This is what, what Jesus said in John 13, 35. He said, by this people, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's the calling card of a Christian. That's the, I mean, that when people look at you, that, that's how they should know you're a Christian, because your love, for, particularly the brethren, but really all people, your love for them. But when you get into a situation where there's divisions, where there's infighting, where there's arguments that doesn't look like love you begin to stop looking like christian start looking like something else entirely and that's what's happening they didn't look like they loved one another and really if you look to this is the is the calling card of a christian if you look at this as is one of the signs of that someone's a christian they didn't look like at all and you know what happens when stuff like that happens and i imagine it was happening there as well, although it's not addressed, but particularly in the church today, people will look at us Christians and they see the fighting, they see the underhandedness, they see the failures and the judgment, they see all that stuff that happens in the world and they go, why would I want to be a Christian? I'm going to, you know, Christians do all the same stuff that we do out here except for they're supposed to feel guilty about it. And it's because we don't look like Christians. Why would we want to be a part of something that's not any better than what they are now? 
And I truthfully believe that the divisiveness, the divisions, and the, the, the church today, and I don't mean our church or any individual church, I mean the church collective, Christ church, is denominations are one of the greatest church that we have. Because that's all they are is, is division. Instead of striving toward unity, we're all striving to prove who's right, who's better, and who's got it all figured out. Although I suspect we're all going to get and stand before Jesus one day and go, wow, we had a lot of it wrong. We were overzealous in some areas and probably not zealous enough in others. And we're, we're all going to see that we all made some mistakes. But it's even to the point now where some denominations aren't even willing to work with others. They can't even put their differences aside enough to even work together to strive to reach the community, to reach people in need or people that are lost. But the truth is, and the reality is, as long as that we have the essential, we can work together with one another. And what I refer to this, the essentials, as you may have heard me refer to before, is like if it, ain't, if it isn't a heaven or hell thing, we can still work alongside each other. Now, we can't come up alongside another church that doesn't believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. That's a fundamental heaven or hell thing that we, we have to be in, a, in agreement on. But anything else, it doesn't, it doesn't matter as long as the essentials we have in unity, then we can work together. And the essentials are this, that Jesus was born of a virgin by the Holy Spirit. He was the Son of God. He was God incarnate. He lived. He died on the cross. And He rose again. And then the only way to salvation through Him, believing in Him and Him alone, receiving it as a free gift. If we got that part right, we can work together with other people. And you'll notice that the essentials have a focus on Jesus. The essentials in Christianity's focus on Jesus. They don't focus on baptism. They don't focus on the gift of the Holy Spirit. They don't focus on methods or styles of worship, methods or styles of preaching. They don't focus on length of service or what happens during the service. The, the essentials have our, is, their focus is on Jesus. Everything else is, is non-essential. You know, and, and we believe fully here in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We believe they're for today. We believe they're important. And we believe that Christians that don't practice them are, are actually missing out on some of the power of God in their lives. But if they don't believe in it, it doesn't mean we can't work with them. The Springs Church, that's not part of their church doctrine. But we still work together with them because we have the essentials right. We're striving together toward unity instead of division. And this is what Paul is just asking. Let's stop having division and work together. And the truth is, in reality, it doesn't even mean we have to agree on everything. It does, we, can ha- we can still, they can still have their beliefs on, on the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and we can have ours. We can still work together because our common goal is to see people one to Christ. Amen? You know, the truth is, if we would just follow that one simple commandment to love one another, we'd probably be all right. 1 Corinthians 1, 11 through 13 he says, For it has been reported to me by close people that there is a quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you say, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? So as we break apart this, these scriptures here, I want to start with close people. 
We don't know who those people are. This is pretty much the only time that they're mentioned. But one thing we can commend them is for their, their courage and their devotion to the body of Christ. They saw a problem, saw an issue, and they immediately reached out to their leadership and said, hey, we got a problem. We want to see this fixed. We don't, we don't want to see the church fall apart. And they didn't try to hide the problem. And that's actually really important when there's a struggle, when there's a difficulty. We shouldn't try to hide it. We should try to resolve it, bring it out into the open. Because the truth is, it'll eventually make itself out into the open, and you're just going to have a bigger mess. And they were burdened about what was going on, and they went to the right person. And instead of shame, they sought help. You know that many times we just tunnel deeper and deeper because we're ashamed? And this is, this is applicable to the church as well as to our individual lives. There's some stuff that we deal with that we're so ashamed of we're afraid to ask help. Something else is they weren't afraid to be mentioned by Paul either. They weren't like, Paul, we've got to tell you something. Just don't, don't tell him. It wasn't a, a cloak and dagger. It wasn't like a behind-the-scenes maneuvering or, or finagling, trying to somehow position themselves in a certain way. They were seriously concerned about what they weren't finger pointing, trying to make themselves look. And the truth is, get in situations like that, finger pointing behind closed doors is not an attempt at a solution. And it never brings resolution, it's just gossip at that point. His concern and a love for their church, they didn't want to see it fall apart. So then Paul says, begins to use himself, Apollos and Cephas or Peter. He begins to use those three leaders to, to make an illustration, to make a point. So Paul is the one who planted this church, right? About seven years ago, he planted this church. It was probably most of the people in this church that have come to know Christ, came to know Christ under his ministry. And that's how Paul relates this story. And then we have Apollos, who was actually had a pretty great ministry in Ephesus. And he knew Paul there, and it was, if you'll remember, he was, he was a Jewish man that was well-versed in the Scriptures, and he was, preaching, he was preaching Jesus, but he didn't have it quite all right. So Priscilla and Aquila, who were Paul's uh, friends, came and explained the way of Christ more accurately. And he had a great ministry. He had an effective ministry in Ephesus. And then Peter, you guys know who Peter is. He's one of the 12 disciples who, who ended up becoming an apostle to the the Jews. Paul was an apostle to the Greeks primarily, and Peter was an apostle to the Jews primarily. And Paul begins to use them in an example. And as I was studying this, I began to realize that these men had different styles of ministry. They were effective. They actually had different areas of ministry. They were effective in different areas. So naturally, people would gravitate to each different person. And as a side note, it's quite possible that Apollos and Cephas weren't actually ever in Corinth. I've always read this and assumed that they were there having ministry, but if you, it's quite possible they were used as an illustration because if you read a little bit further in 1 Corinthians 4, 6, Paul says, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. February will be that none of these guys were actually there. They would just have been names that, he would have, that they would have known. He was using them as an illustration, at the same time not calling anybody else out publicly what was going on. 
But nonetheless, Paul's basically asking, who is your faith in? Is your faith in Paul to save you? Is your faith in Peter to save you? Is your faith in Apollos to save you? Are you more saved if you got under Paul's ministry, under Peter's ministry, or under Apollos' ministry? He said, who's your faith in? Christ was not divided among us. I didn't have a portion of Christ. Peter didn't have a portion of Christ. And Paul didn't have a portion of Christ. We're all preaching the same Christ. Paul says, I didn't die for you. You know, it's, it's, the reality is that, that people get wrapped up in sin instead of Christ. And the truth is, is these, that's actually why. Have anybody ever heard somebody say that I don't go to church because, because I was really hurt at the church, so-and-so did this, so I'll never go back? That's because their, their faith was in a man and not Christ. It's like when these famous TV evangelists fall or do something stupid and thousands of people are let a, you know, they, they fall away. It's because their faith was in a man, not Christ. He's saying, if none of this is true, if Christ isn't divided, if I wasn't crucified for you, if you weren't baptized in my name, then why are you making such a big deal about me? Why are you making such a big deal about Apollos? Why are you making such a big deal? If none of this is true, why, is it such, why are they such a big deal? You know, the truth is, is we actually see this in local churches today too. When the pastor's gone on vacation, all of a sudden church attendance halves that Sunday. Because everyone actually came to see the pastor or not to see Jesus. We need to make sure that that's not ever the case. You know, if somebody else is to, to minister here and I'm not going to be here, that shouldn't change who comes to church that day. Because you're coming to see Jesus. You're coming to hear from God. And God can use anybody to preach. As my pastor so pointed out when he called me into ministry, he said, if God can speak through a donkey, he can surely speak through Wayne. True story. <laughs> I'm actually getting all kinds of backhand compliments. Growing up in ministry, when I first started to learn to play guitar, <laughs> one of the first Sundays that I was up there, <laughs> and she didn't mean it this way, but this is how it came across. I'm playing guitar, and I said, "Hey, how did I do?" And she goes, "It was better than nothing." <laughs> and I, I looked at her. I'm like, "What?" And then she got all embarrassed when she realized. What she did. <laughs> yeah, that's that's been my walk. You know, every time I do. God can speak through a donkey better than nothing. Hey, God can use me. He can use anybody up here. Doesn't actually mean or any pastor for that matter. In First Corinthians one fourteen through seventeen, he says, "I thank God that I baptized none of you except Christian Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name." I did baptize also the household of Stephanus, but beyond that, I do not know whether to baptize or not. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ empty of its power. So, a quick uh, rundown of who everybody is. Crispus was, uh, had been a ruler of the synagogue in Corinth. You can read about him in Acts 18.8. Gaius was probably the man Paul lived with when he wrote Romans. And that was, you can see his name mentioned in Romans 16.23. And the household of Stephanus 
Um, you can read about them more in 1 Corinthians 16, 15 through 17. And so we know that uh, they were the first converts in, in Achaia, which was the Roman province that Corinth was the capital of. Um, and we also know that Stephanus went to visit Paul in, in uh, Ephesus at some point. And some scholars think that it's quite possible that Stephanus was actually the, the jailer that, that uh, Paul was with there and, and, and the Philippian jailer there when you know the, the earthquake came and everything opened up and he was about to kill himself. Um, although it's not real clear, but some scholars think that actually may be who he was, was that household. Remember when he says that they were all baptized that night. But the point is, is that Paul's making is, I can count the number of people I baptized on my, on my fingers. There's not been that many of them. And we know that Paul's ministry was He reached a lot of people. So the point he's saying is, is I'm, you know what, I'm glad this is all I baptized. So at least you couldn't use that to somehow elevate me in your eyes, somehow make me one of these leaders that you're dealing with. I'm thankful that I, I only baptized a few of you. And when we're reading about this, we have to keep in mind that in the New Testament, the, the baptism was extremely important, particularly because when a new believer was baptized as a Christian, they were basically cut off from their old life, their old friends. It's much like when Muslims give their life to Christ today. For us in the States, you know, at worst, it was just something we forget about. But for the Jewish people at the time, when they received, they were cut off from their family. They were cut off from the, the synagogues. They were cut off from everything. They were literally turning their life over to and Muslims are like that today. When they, when they give their life, we hear stories all the time where a husband or a wife will give their life to Christ and, and the other one will, will begin to contact family back home to make attempts to, to get them killed. They're giving up everything to be That's why when you read in the New, the, the, the New Testament, it talks about Paul says that I've, 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 I've turned them over to Satan. Basically, they, they've been removed from the church and turned over to Satan. Why it was a much bigger deal now. I mean, today we think if we get kicked out of the church, worst case scenario, if you wanted to stay in the church, you just go to the one down the street. Back then, if you were if you were removed from the church based on conduct or discipline or for whatever reason, it was a big deal because you couldn't go back to where you were. And until you repented, you couldn't go back to the Christian church. And you were in a mess. It costs something to be baptized. And just as Jesus didn't baptize people, you can read that in John uh, 4, 1 through 2. And also Peter and Paul, they, they allowed their associates to baptize new converts. The same style that, that uh, Jesus did. And that was the idea. I mean, Paul didn't baptize very many people because his, his converts did his associates. It's, it's one of the reasons why when, when we do baptisms here, usually I have the parents of the kids coming out to be baptized or somebody else is out there with me because it's not super important that it's me that does the baptizing. I don't have special baptism hands or baptism prayers. God doesn't hear me better than anybody else. It's not super important. The fact is that you're making proclamation statements, which is why I love that we can have, you know, Hector got to, to baptize <coughs> his daughter, and he'll get to baptize, sorry, his other daughter when we do her baptism. So probably in the beginning, Paul did do his baptism. That's why he did baptize a couple. But as it grew, it was his associates, it was the other converts, it was everybody else that was doing the baptism. 
But the problem was that they, they were beginning to identify their baptism with a person. We should never identify our baptism with, with any one man. It's a blessing for people to be able to baptize. It's a blessing for parents to be able to baptize their children, so on and so forth. But our baptism shouldn't be associated with them. It should be associated with Jesus Christ, who, whose name we're being baptized. And to do so, to associate any of this stuff that should be attributed to Christ to a man creates division in the church. One commenter said, as I was studying this, he said, I've read accounts about people who had to be baptized by a certain preacher using special water, usually from the Jordan River, on a special day as though these are the matters that are important. It doesn't matter what you're baptized, whether it's a a river, a bathtub, a pool, a horse trough. It doesn't really matter. Because it's not the water, it's not where it comes from, it's not the act itself. It doesn't for you. It's a proclamation of what's already been accomplished inside of you. Amen? But instead of honoring the Lord Jesus Christ, promoting the history of the church, these people were exalted. Creating division. True, all day, and it's true today as well. And it's not even just baptism that's happened. I mean, you see so many times that, that I remember when we were in the, the Tucson church, there were times where we would be praying for people, and, and we usually had all the life group leaders up there, so there'd be, you know, six or eight, ten couples leaders up there standing to be able to pray for people, but there was a big long line behind the pastor. Because and whether they were doing it intentionally or not, they figured that his prayers were heard better than anybody else. They were exalting a man, which is something that we have to be very careful to do. And that's what Paul says. At least I didn't baptize that many of you, so you couldn't grab a hold of that. The other thing that I want to deal with as we're reading this this morning is the role of baptism in salvation. Because there are uh, some groups that say that in order to be saved, you have to be baptized. And I want to I talk about that because the truth is, is, is it doesn't. You don't have to be baptized to be saved. Baptism is not a part of your salvation. But the verse that causes the problem, and the reason why people deal with this is Mark 16, 15 through 16, he says, And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. But whoever does not believe will be. That's where they're getting that from, because it says pretty clearly, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. So people have tacked on baptism. Baptism baptism is part of what is required to be saved. But just looking at this verse, we can read the second part, and whoever does not believe will be condemned. So what, what caused the condemnation? Not believing. It's not baptism that saves you. But the truth is, baptism is the natural next step for the believer. As a matter of fact, the reason why this is dealt with so much like this then is because in the Old Testament, like I said, one baptism was that step that said, I'm, I'm done here and I'm moving on with Christ. Baptism was kind of like we do an altar call here. We call people up and say, you know, raise your hand, come forward. Back then they said, raise your hand, just come get wet. That was their altar call, was baptism. But it wasn't the baptism that saved them, that was just them, them their outward proclamation, what has happened on the inside of them. So baptism, therefore, 
is the requirement of being a disciple, but not a requirement of salvation. You guys see the difference there. Because Matthew 28, 19 through 20 says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So to be a disciple, you need to get baptized. But it's not has anything to do with your salvation. It has to do with you being obedient to the word of God and the calling of God on your life. And another, this is another evidence that Paul apparently didn't think it was that paramount either. He says, I thank God I baptized none of you. He says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied in the power. Paul said, I didn't come to baptize people. I came to preach the gospel. Because that's what's important, that, that people, important, that people hear the gospel. They respond to the gospel. And then once they respond to the gospel, the next step, the next natural reaction is to get baptized. Tell the world what has just happened inside of you. Amen? And like I said, I do want to be clear. I'm not saying to not be baptized. Baptism is important. Baptism is a requirement of a disciple. But it's not a requirement. Amen? I want to actually be clear here. I don't think Paul's minimize the baptism. He's not saying it's not important, but he's just saying that we can way to love some of others based on who's doing it. Then he goes on to say he goes on to say God sent me to, to ba- not to baptize but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, but the power of Christ. The cross of Christ be emptied of its power. He begins once again he starts with baptism, and he even talks about preaching the gospel. The gospel is not focused on me either. It doesn't matter if you heard the gospel from me or somebody else. Matter of fact, I didn't even come to do it with, with words of eloquent wisdom. He says, I didn't come out here to, to, to speak with fancy words and to, to basically persuade people into trusting God based on how well I can speak, how well I can. It's not elegant speaking that elevates. It's the truth that Jesus Christ has set you free that elevates the gospel. And the truth is, you elevate yourself and then it turns out. When you try to, to, to make it something more than it is, just a simple promise gift of God, when you begin to try to make yourself look better and yourself up, you're actually detracting from the gospel. And it says, let's the cross of Christ be made of its power. What does he mean by that? What he means is that that if it becomes a a dog and pony show where you're just trying to look good and people grab a hold of it because of how good you are, their faith is in you, not in the cross. You've actually lessened the power of the cross in your life because they're attached to you and not the cross itself. And the gospel is powerless if a people's eyes are not on Christ because it's Jesus. And belief and trust in him is the power to First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1.19, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, discernment and discerning, I will thwart. So as we continue on, we're going to go ahead and see Paul contrasting the message of God with the wisdom of man. 
And he kind of goes on to show why we should never really mix the two. Because the message of God, like I said earlier when we started this, is often in contradiction with the wisdom. Because we're not so wise as we like to think we are. According to man's wisdom, the cross is kind of crazy. The cross doesn't make any sense. To the Jews, the Messiah was supposed to be a political general, a political powerhouse, a military powerhouse who would free them from their oppressive rulers at the time of the Romans. That's who they thought. They thought the Messiah was coming back, and you know he was just going to, to set them free politically and economically and, and, and militarily. And that's who their eyes were. That's why when they, when they looked at that, they're like, this, this Jesus couldn't be that person. And to the Greek philosophers, they looked at the cross like many of us do today. And they see it as just, just crazy, maybe even cruel. I mean, why would God send his son to die? That doesn't, I mean, that's an awful, I don't want to serve a God who's, who's malicious like that. I think it's crazy that even if they could get past that part, that somebody could even die on the cross for you and somehow that cleanses you. It doesn't make any sense. And even worse, if you think about the method of it, I've talked about it before, is God sent our Savior as a baby. The most fragile thing. I mean, think about how many ways that plan could have gone wrong. I mean, what if you would have got eaten by a wolf or a lion? Or what if you would have got bullied as a kid and it changed your entire outlook on life? It's like, I'm not dying for any of these crazy. I mean, I mean, think about it. This could have went wrong, and this is not how we would have done it. Our wisdom would have been, nope, we're going to send somebody fully formed and developed. That Basically, our wisdom would have been to do it how the Jews thought it was going to happen. Send somebody that was just powerful and mighty and take care of everything. That's one of the things that makes the gospel so real to me. It's one of those proofs for me, if you will, is because this is not even close to how I would have done it. And I like to think of myself as a pretty smart guy. Maybe more so than my wife thinks of myself, but I like to think of myself as a pretty intelligent guy. I can formulate pretty good plans, and uh, in no way, shape, or form would the plan of salvation for the entire world involve a baby. I mean, this is God's way of it, not ours. The truth is, is that if you think about every other religion that's ever been created, that's how man thinks. We think that, that salvation comes by us earning our salvation. If we do this, this, and this, if we do the right thing, if we, depending on which, you know, if we kill the right people or kill the right animals or we do whatever it is, there's this list of things that we have to do. And if we can do these things, then maybe God will be happy. But Christianity is the only one where instead of us going to God, God came to us. God said, Guess what? There's nothing you can do that's going to fix what's broken. It's going to make you clean. It's going to make you right. But because I love you, I'm going to take care of you. That's not God. That's not Christianity. That's crazy. That's, foolish. that's why the cross is foolish to so many people. But the truth is, our wisdom is extreme. And it only makes sense to us in hindsight. Some of you are thinking, no, it makes sense to me, Pastor. That's because the cross isn't foolishness anymore. Your, your eyes have been opened, your heart's been opened, and you see it as what it is, the power to save. But you probably don't have to go back that far to, to, or just let your own head get in there and start thinking about how crazy the plan actually is. Salvation. 
1 Corinthians 1, 19-21 says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the discernment of the discerning court. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So Paul begins to call out all these wise. Because remember, we're dealing with division. Now we're elevating man and how these wise people are deciding that, that this person's better than that or this person's better than that. And we're also dealing with, with Greek philosophers who had their own idea of what the right way to do things was. And he basically is saying, all right, all you guys, where are the wise? Where are the plans of the wise? How are those plans working out for you? What has their wisdom accomplished? What are, where have they gotten? Anytime man tries to step in and, and accomplish peace or prosperity, it always gets messed up at some point. And he calls on three men to bear witness. The wise, which would be the expert, the scribes, or the interpreters and the writers, or, or the, and the disputer, which are the philosophers and the debaters. And he asks them one question. Through your study into man's wisdom, have you come to know God in a personal way? So he goes on to say here, he says, look, where's the... Where's the wise scribe, the debater? He says, down here, he says, the world does not know God through wisdom. Through all your wisdom, how did you come to know God? Has that, has that helped you know God through all your wisdom? And they all, they have to answer no. If they're going to answer honestly. Because in the cross, God has made all the wisdom of man, Jewish or Greek or even any wisdom today in our so-called society, in our, in light, our so-called enlightened age, it's worthless in the cross because none of that gets you anywhere. Only the cross brings you to God. It brings you closer to God. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the light, and no man shall come to the Father except through me. There's no other way. Not being smart enough or wise enough or doing the right things. And in God's wisdom, he says, for since in the wisdom, I almost wonder when I read this if he's kind of saying sarcastic. But he says, for since in the wisdom of God, the world will not know God through wisdom. So basically, God's wisdom says that, that we don't come to know him through our own smarts, our own wisdom, but instead we come to know him because he us. It was his plan, not our plan. And he says because of that, since the, since the entry point of knowing God is not wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Because you know what? If it's not wisdom that gets you to even know God, it's not going to be wisdom that gets you to be saved. But instead, it's the folly of the gospel. And with the plan of the gospel, no man can say that they had to do with it. That's the brilliance of it, if you think about it. The plan's so crazy and backwards that not a single person can say, it was me that got me here. Because it wasn't. It was God. He sent his son. He died to pay the price for your sin. Nothing that you did brought you to where we are today in fellowship with him. None of us can say it was how I lived my life. It was all the great things that I did. Not a single one of us. That's the brilliance of it. See, in hindsight, I can see the brilliance of it. But there was a time that it didn't make sense. It was foolishness. And in the face of earthly wisdom and accomplishment, salvation is based on the free gift. 1 Corinthians 1, 22-25, it says, For Jews demand a sign and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, 
But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So Paul's beginning to describe here that there's basically three attitudes that we can take towards the cross. There's only three. One, it can be a stumbling block. And that was kind of the attitude of the Jews. That's what they were dealing with because their emphasis was on miraculous signs. This year the Jews were, were demanding signs. But the cross doesn't seem like a miraculous, powerful sign. It seems weak. And Jewish history is filled with miraculous events from the exodus out of Jesus, out of the exodus out of Egypt to the days of Elijah and Elisha. I mean, you think about the stories that happened back then. Wow, it would have been great to see some of that stuff. And the Jewish history is full of these powerful signs and miracles, God moving in ways that we couldn't imagine. And even reading the Bible, I think sometimes we don't imagine. Like, I always think about when they crossed the, the Dead Sea and the, the, the walls, there was millions of people that crossed. It, it wasn't like he made a, a small, narrow pathway. I mean, the power of God that did those kind of things were amazing. And when you think about it, when, when, when the, the water came out of the rock. Now, in my head, when I always think about that, I'm thinking of like a water spigot, right? And everybody came up and said, there was, I think it was 600,000 people. Just the men. So we're looking at probably close to 2 million people, if I'm remembering my numbers correctly. A spigot wasn't going to cut it for everyone to get water. Think of what happened that day when basically a river formed. I mean, these people are used to seeing signs. But the cross, it didn't seem like an amazing Instead of God being victorious, it looked like God had been defeated. And when Jesus was ministering on earth, the Jewish people were repeatedly form a sign, but he always refused. And the truth is, they didn't, they didn't understand their own sacred scriptures. They looked for a Messiah who would come as a mighty conqueror and defeat all their enemies. And he would then set up his kingdom and return for glory. This is what they were looking for. And the question of the apostles in Acts 1.6, if you read what they asked them for the apostles, you're going to see how strong that really was in them. Because the Jews were looking for power and great glory, they stumbled at the weakness of the cross. Because truthfully, and this actually, if you think about it from an earthly sense, makes sense. How could anybody put faith in an unemployed carpenter from Nazareth who died the shameful death of a common criminal? That's what they were thinking. Then the other option that we have is, if we don't see it as a stumbling block, we see it as folly, foolish. We basically laugh at the idea of the cross. And this was the response of the Greeks. To them, it was crazy. It didn't make any sense. Because the Greeks emphasized wisdom. They emphasized study. They emphasized philosophy. And, and they had all their profound writings and the Greek philosophers and all that stuff. But they saw no wisdom in the cross. Because they looked at the cross from a human point of view. But had they seen it from God's point of view, they would have discerned that it was the wisdom of God, the great plan of salvation. But the very fact that they laughed at the cross 
The very fact that people laugh at the cross today is just evidence that they are praying. Because they don't for what it really is, which is the third way to look at the cross. The power of God, wisdom of God. Paul's message to the Jews was essentially the same. Not essentially, it was the same. It was Christ crucified. That was his message to the Jews, the Greeks, whoever would listen. That was the message. It didn't matter who you were. And what the wise saw as God's foolishness actually revealed to be even wise. And what the what the what they all thought was weakness was actually revealed strength. I mean, you think about it. We think of his. They they thought of his death as a sign of defeat. When really, in his death, he defeated sin, defeated the grave, he defeated everything. And what they thought was his defeat was actually his victory. The foolishness of God, from an earthly perspective, the foolishness of God is actually our salvation. How crazy is that? And in 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29, it says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. This is actually one of those backhanded compliments, too. I guess I should consider myself a good compliment. <laughs> Paul's like, well, think about who you guys are. Think about where you came from. You weren't rich, powerful, strong, noble birth. You weren't any of those things. Yet God used you. Kind of like a, God can speak to a donkey. God used you to prove foolish all those people that thought, I'm going to be okay because I'm rich. I'm going to be okay because I'm wise. I'm going to be okay because I'm strong. But no, that's actually not what makes okay. The truth is, in our weakness, in, our, in all those areas where we're not, we don't consider ourselves good enough on our own, the areas we're in heaven the most. I believe that with all my heart because we, we, those aren't areas that we figure we can do it on our own. The areas that I've struggled with the most in my Christian walk were all the areas where I figured I could just do it on my own. I was good enough on my own. I could figure it out on my own. What did I need God for? And actually, that's one of my greatest falls in my Christian walk where when my life was turned upside down, it's because I, was, I could do it all myself. And God finally said, you know what? Give it a shot. And my world collapsed. You've heard it before, my my filed for bankruptcy. My wife this close to leaving. Guys would have been out of luck today and not have been blessed by her presence. But it's because I thought I could do it on my own. And the truth is that those areas that we have that pride are the areas that God has the hardest time working. But in areas that we're weak, we're like, shoot, shoot, I know I can do this. God, give me a hand. And we trust him fully. It works out. That's why God to, to make foolish the, the, the high, the unwise the wise, because we trust him instead of trusting ourselves. God chose these weren't high and mighty, weren't powerful, weren't, weren't rich. And it basically served the purpose. It showed those who were all those things that they didn't have all the answers. 
And it proved that it wasn't on merit. Because if God would save them, it certainly wasn't because they were wise, strong, rich, powerful. Go ahead and hear this. The end of chapter 1 Corinthians 1, 30-30. He is the source of your life. Tailing off the back. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Because God is the source of your life. Right? God made our wisdom, righteousness, and our redemption. Therefore, as it is written, the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Because God and God alone. Because Jesus and him alone, we are saved, we are strong. It says we become Jesus, he becomes our wisdom, our righteousness. In him, we are all those things that we are lacking without him. So if there's going to be any boasting, and that's what he's dealing with. Remember, if we go back, he's dealing with the vision of the church and people boasting and other men and getting behind other men. He says, what if there's going to be any boasting? Don't boast. Don't boast in yourself. Don't boast in all in the Lord. And if we would all do that, if all of our boasting would be in the Lord, if our eyes were always on the Lord, there wouldn't be division for those kind of things. The, the tools used by God are irrelevant. They're just that. Whether it's me or some other pastor or, or Bible study leaders, the tools are irrelevant as long as they're walking with God and serving God and they're getting fed the right. It doesn't really matter who it is. As long as they're on on Christ. And if we'll do that, we'll never see the division that can be seen. When we have guest speakers come in, we, we have our, our men that are growing up in this church speak. Don't go, oh, I'm not going to church today because I don't like listening to, to Hector speak, or I don't like listening to Joseph speak, or I don't like listening to, to, to John speak. If we do those kind of things, we're making division. Instead, we come together and we support those who are growing. We support every every person that's walking with the Lord. And we come together as a church coming to Christ, not individual men. Let's go ahead and stand to our feet.